All right. So welcome to the Johnson Marquez uh, Legal Group podcast. I'm Dave Johnson, managing partner of Johnson Marquez. And with me today is one of our associates, um, Heather Coleman. Hi, say everyone. Hi. Say hi. All right. And uh, today's subject, uh, probably not one of the more popular podcasts, uh, Lawyers Gotta Be Paid. Um, talking about attorney's fees and uh, how, what kind of arrangements uh, lawyers typically offer to clients. Um, but before we start that, I mean, you take a lot of these phone calls and a lot of people call in and they're looking, they can't afford a lawyer, um, but they still have questions and they still need some help. Um, there are some resources out there for people who just can't afford lawyers, right? Yeah, definitely. I, I think the Denver metro area is pretty good at, at offering a low cost or no cost legal options for people that can't afford an attorney. Um, some options that come off the top of my head, Metro Volunteer Lawyers, um, they handle a lot of divorce cases that are uh, generally more low conflict. Um, and Colorado Legal Services, um, those are two great organizations that if you cannot afford representation, they may be able to help out. There's also a University of Denver Student Law Office, which uh, they only take cases a couple times a year, but it's worth a phone call. Yeah, definitely. Um, but yeah, those are th that. That's a, a pretty short list of of resources that are available to people who just simply can't afford a private lawyer. Yeah, and you know, although they are great organizations, um, you know, they can't handle every case that comes in their door, so they take a limited amount of cases. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about uh, when you actually have to hire and pay for a lawyer. Uh, I mean, what uh, what do you see as the range of reasonable hourly rates out there for lawyers in Denver, the Denver metro area? Yeah, I mean. You know, a rate uh, that an attorney is going to charge per hour is really dependent on uh, their level of experience, kind of what the general rate is in the metro area. Um, I'd say anywhere between 200 and 400, which is a pretty wide range. But again, it really depends on that experience level. Yeah. And then uh, paralegals usually bill, I've seen them anywhere from 120 up to 180 an hour, depending again on, on how involved they are. Yeah. Um, and uh Let's see any other any other people you got to pay during the divorce. I mean, one of the one of the um, first things that people want to know about is the retainer. Uh, <clears throat> it's it's probably not the best question to ask. How much is your retainer, and and make a decision about who to hire based on their answer. Um, but it does provide some important information, right? Yeah, I mean, a, a retainer is. I mean, retainer is an amount that's going to be required for the attorney to get started. It is not the amount that, you know, your case is ultimately going to end up costing. So for example, if someone's offering a $1,500 retainer, uh, it's very likely your case is going to exceed $1,500. Um, so I, I wouldn't let the actual retainer amounts um, kind of scare you off or entice you from a certain attorney. Yeah. And, and to that point, they're not, uh, when they quote that retainer, it is not related in any way, really to um, what the expected legal fees are going to be, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, like I said, the retainer is, is, is it's, it's like a security deposit in a way. It's what you put down um, before the lawyer can start work. Um, but it really is in no way related to overall costs of your case. Now, some, uh, I've heard this exists out there, but I'm not sure I've ever seen it um, used. Flat fee divorces. Um, yeah, but where you don't have a retainer, you put down an amount of money and they offer some service that is, uh, 
based that is supposed to uh, get you through the, the based on that amount, right? Yeah, and I mean, I would be pretty suspicious of a of a flats fee divorce if someone's offering you that, or maybe you saw it online. I I know there are some websites I think that offer. Uh, like divorce packages. Um, but I, I would be suspicious of that. I mean, it, there's no way of knowing how much a divorce is going to cost. And say someone says, hey, you know, $9.95, we can get you divorced. Um, and then they run out of money when your case has just started. And then right. you're back to square one pretty much. Yeah. I mean, any uh, representation uh, by a lawyer, the cost is, is really t- directly related to the conflict in the case, some of these cases are low conflict and the, the, the folks just aren't going to be fighting over much and they pretty much have their mind made up on how things are going to be split. Right. And there's not going to be a whole lot of uh, expense. Uh, I mean, divorce is always expensive, but there's not going to be a whole lot of expense in a, in a no conflict or low conflict case. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah, obviously the, the overall cost of your divorce is definitely related to how contested your case is and how much conflict there is. Um, but again, I mean, trusting that, you know, you're going to have a low conflict divorce and then putting your money towards a, a flat free, flat fee promise. Um, I mean, you don't really know the way your divorce is going to go. No one ever really knows. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I steer clear of, uh, I would steer clear of any um, flat fee sort of representation because uh, either uh, the lawyer is just simply going to run out of the ability to cover your case because you made, you know, your case may be very high conflict or one of the, the side effects of doing a flat fee case in my experience on other types of cases uh, early in my career was that if you have a flat fee, then why not argue over everything? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and then, you know, a side effect to that is maybe your case is really contested. Um, but you've, you know, you guys have agreed that your divorce is going to cost a thousand dollars, no matter what, then it, your case probably isn't going to get the attention it deserves. Right. So uh, the other option of retainers, uh, let's talk about the different types of retainers. I, I basically see three different types of initial retainers. Um, and we're going to talk just about initial retainers right now. Uh, one is where they use the retainer and then they bill it the time after that. And then, then another is where they use the retainer and then they require you to repost the retainer. And another is where they hold the retainer like a security deposit and they bill you, mm-hmm. right? So tell me about um, the first one where they use it and then, and then bill you. Um, so the first, I, I, it's probably, I mean, I guess it's kind of a mixed bag as, as to what I've heard of most often. But um, with, with the first one, you're going to post a retainer and the attorney is going to work against that retainer. Um, but they're also going to require that you continue to replenish the retainer, not letting it get down to zero or even below zero. Yeah. I mean, in some cases, what they'll do is they will like, say, for example, a $2,500 retainer, they'll go through the 2,500 and then they, and you, but it'll be like $500 over that. Then they'll send you a bill for 500 and then you pay them 500 then they'll send you a bill for a thousand and then you got to pay the thousand. Mm-hmm. So basically they'll run through the retainer, the initial retainer first, and then they'll bill you for whatever they do after that. Right. Right. Um, and then there are other firms that require you like to post that $2,500 retainer. And then when that retainer gets down to zero, you got to post another $2,500 retainer. Right. Right. And the, uh, this is probably my least favorite option. Um, I suppose, or what, what I'm, I guess, most weary of. Um, Cause I mean, that's just, it's risky to everyone involved and you don't want to be in a situation where 
Um, you know, your retainer has been used up and then all of a sudden you're getting a bill for another $2,500. Um, I mean, it's typically easier to kind of pay as you go and not wait till your retainer gets to zero and then have to replenish the entire amount again. Right. Um, yeah, I find that, uh, that replenishing that retainer uh, can be really hard on people during the term of the divorce. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they're, they can be kind of stuck at that point with, uh, with whatever, um, whatever stage they're at in the case, the attorney may have to get out because you can't repost the $5,000 retainer that they initially set. Right. And then there's the, let's talk about the third type where, uh, you, you, you post a retainer, um, but it just sits there like a security deposit and then you pay your lawyers. You go, that's what our firm, that's the arrangement our firm has with clients. And it's, it's referred to as either an evergreen or a sustaining retainer. Um, how does that work? And so basically, um, you know, your retainer is like a security deposit. Um, if you're thinking about this as in uh, renting out a house, for example, you put down a security deposit and then you're paying rent every month. Um, and same with the retainer, basically you put down your retainer and it's kind of pay as you go from there. Um, your retainer will sit there, um, and you will get billed. Um, you'll have to replace what has been billed out of your retainer, but when your case is over, then you'll get the remainder of your retainer back. Yeah. So at the end of the case, you get the $2,500 back. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the things about um, our experience with charging a sustaining retainer has been that you don't need as big of a retainer because it's just going to sit there. Right. Um, The only time you dig into the retainer really is if they don't pay their bill in Mm -hmm. effect. Right. Yeah. And I mean, this, it is helpful because it'll avoid a situation where maybe, you know, you've talked to an attorney and they're saying they, you know, you need a $10,000 retainer. And I mean, that's, that's hard to come up with all at once. Um, with treating the retainer as a security deposit, um, it allows it to be a lower amount and then it allows you to make easier mo- bi-monthly payments. Right. And, uh, and, and let's talk about that. Or, or let's talk about the, uh, the, the last type of a retainer. It's not the initial retainer. It's called a trial retainer or a hearing retainer. What is that? So, and this is very common, um, especially, I mean, if you have a contested divorce or custody case and you have a trial scheduled, um, a lot of attorneys are going to require you to post a trial retainer. Um, This is essentially where the attorney is going to ask you to post, uh, for example, a $5,000 retainer um, for trial preparation. Trials are expensive. Um, A lot of preparation goes into trials and you don't want to be in a situation where um, the retainer hasn't been increased. Um, attorney's fees are, are large because of the hearing. And then all of a sudden your entire retainer is gone and you owe more money than the retainer even was. Right. And, uh, th- there are a lot of reasons behind, in my experience, a lot of reasons behind posting a trial retainer. Some of them are related to just the financial security of the firm, the law firm to make sure that they don't, um, go into a situation where they're never going to get paid. Another is, um, to make sure that you're fighting uh, over things that you should be fighting over um, because it gets real mm-hmm. um, when you get close to hearing and you got to post another $10,000 retainer, right? Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, if, uh, if you, if you think you're headed towards a hearing and you know, your attorney says, Hey, since we are headed this way, you are going to have to post a trial retainer. Um, and maybe what you've been arguing over, isn't really that important. Um, then you really need to consider like, Hey, am I arguing over the right things? Like, is it worth it for me to put my money towards hearing? I'm going to have to put more money towards hearing, or is it worth it now to settle? Yeah. I, and I think that, uh, Obviously, clients, 90% of clients probably have not been through this before. 
And uh, they don't really have an idea of how expensive those hearings can be. Um, I remember I was uh, working late night at a mediation and uh, the opposing counsel and I stepped out in the hallway because the mediator wanted to talk to the clients and we were talking about whether we were going to have to go to hearing. And uh, she was saying, you know, uh, um, I always try and tell my clients it's going to cost $35,000 for me to walk in that door to do that hearing. Um, and that that is a strong motivator for settlement. And I never forgot that, number one, because it's an enormous number. Um, and number two, because she was telling me that in the context of trying to get her client to get real mm-hmm. um, about the situation. And she's a very good lawyer, and I'm not going to tell you who she was. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, oftentimes that trial retainer uh, helps clients focus and, uh, and, and sometimes results in a settlement. Yeah. Um, let's talk about billing. Uh, lawyers got to be paid. And so they send you a bill, um, under, under the, uh, two of the three types of retainers where they use your retainer and then they start billing you. And under the sustaining retainer where this retainer acts like a security deposit, you're going to get a bill, right? Mm -hmm. And you're going to get a regular bill. Um, if you're the consumer and you want to hold your lawyer accountable, how often do you want to see a bill? Uh, I mean, I'd say twice a month, um, any longer than that. I mean, if you go a month without seeing a bill, you're you're going to forget things that have been happening on your case. Um, when you get the bill, you're not even really going to be sure, you know, like, well, I, you know, I don't remember what happened 30 days ago. Like, I guess this happens. Um, but I would say bi-monthly billing statements are the way to go. Um, and, and I mean, honestly, a lot of people get paid twice a month. Um, so, it, I mean, it just makes sense on so many levels. Um, it, it helps you stay informed as to what's happening on your case. Yeah. I mean, uh, like you said, people forget about it. Um, it's a great way of holding your lawyer accountable. I mean, some people think that, that billing twice a month and I, I've gotten this as the managing partner, I've gotten the complaints of, you know, we just don't want to get a bill that often. And why should we have to pay the bill that often? But it, it is a really strong mechanism for holding your lawyer accountable. Right. Oh yeah. Uh, like you said, because when they write it down, uh, it's going to be hopefully so recent in your memory that you're going to remember whether or not you talk to that lawyer for six minutes, 12 minutes or 18 minutes. Right. Yeah. And I mean, it's really as simple as just going back, you know, no more than 15 days. So two weeks. Um, and it's you know usually pretty easy to remember what happened two weeks ago. Like, yeah, I remember we did go to mediation two weeks ago. I remember I did talk to my attorney about this on this date. Um, so it's just a way of keeping uh, you know, keeping on top of your case, keeping your attorney accountable. And I also think it helps uh, confine the conflict a little bit because if you get caught up in the emotional state of arguing over the color of tennis shoes, right? And you do that for a month. I mean, that's going to be a five digit bill. Right? Yeah. It, sometimes it is eye opening when you have been very involved in your case, maybe somewhat unnecessarily arguing over every little thing and, you know, going back and forth about this and that. Um, when you get your bill, it might be kind of eye opening as to how much you're kind of arguing over the small stuff. Right. And, and the more frequently you get that bill, the more often you're going to have that kind of uh, epiphany that maybe I really don't need to be fighting over the color of the tennis shoes. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, Uh, two things about bills. One is that uh, mistakes get made when you bill, right? Yeah. I mean, um, you know, we as attorneys, we try to be as, uh, as perfect as possible um, when we draft anything, but I mean, everyone makes mistakes. Um, Sometimes there will be mistakes in the billing entries, whether it's as simple as a typo, or maybe we've made a mistake um, 
instead of a, of a 0.5, we put a five, five hours for, you know, a telephone call, which is obviously very unrealistic. And we're not trying to pull a fast one on you. Um, but if you, I mean, if you do see a mistake, just let your attorney know and we'll be happy to fix it. Yeah. I mean, they, they do happen. And uh, even with the best attorneys, and again, this is one of my jobs as, a, as managing partners to handle those complaints when they come in and, you know, we fix them and, and we reissue the bill uh, and we review the bills uh, at, before they go out um, each billing cycle. But uh, again, the, the frequency of billing uh, is, is really important for holding the attorney accountable and making sure that everybody is getting it right. I remember reading, uh, I think it was in the New York Times about attorney billing, the, the frequency that the attorney bills also improves the accuracy. They said that if you wait to bill once a month and you're pulling your time off of handwritten sheets, you're actually wrong about your time entry 70% of the time. <laughs> yeah, I can't even imagine doing that. I mean, I, I bill every day. Um, by the end of the day, I make sure that I have all my billing entries in for the day. Because um, again, it's you know, it, it holds you accountable, and it you make sure you're getting accurate billing entries in. Yeah, and and I, you know, again, some clients think that this is uh, just the law firm trying to get more money, but it is actually us making sure we're accountable to our clients mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, is, is is so that they can review the bill and make sure that it's accurate. Um, and then what what happens? You know. The bill is right, but it's a lot. And the client is unhappy and complains about the billing. Um, Do you have any recommendations for that client about those complaints? Um, How to bring them about, how how to address them, who to bring them to? that sort of thing. Right. I mean, it's, it's definitely something to um, discuss with your attorney um, really while you're in the process of retaining or before you retain an attorney to make sure that, you know, you've read the fee agreements, um, you know, exactly what's going to happen. You know exactly what's going to happen. If you are unable to pay, um, you know what to expect on your billing statement so that that shock doesn't exist in the first place. Um, But if it does and you're unhappy with your bill, um, I would recommend calling your attorneys or the firm's billing department and seeing what you guys can work out. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's tough sometimes because clients will call and they will just be uh, upset with the total amount of the bill. And you'll say, OK, or I'll say, All right, well, where was it wrong? Where is it inaccurate so that we can talk about that? And they can't point to it. They're just unhappy because the fight over the color of the tennis shoes, you know, cost them a thousand dollars. Yeah. And I mean, and the unfortunate reality is, um, I mean, your attorney's working on your case uh, in order to further your case to come to a successful resolution or outcome. And if you're unhappy with your bill just because you don't like the number that you see on it, um, but you can't really pinpoint like where something went wrong or if there was a mistake. Um, I mean, there's, you know, the attorney isn't going to discount time because you're unhappy with the amount of time spent on the case. Yeah. Um, it's and again, that's another reason to have that bill come out frequently, so you can spot an argument that is just simply costing you too much, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, all right. So, what happens when uh, the client can't pay their bill anymore? Uh, what did, what what happens? Yeah, and you know, this is an unfortunate reality. Um, t- divorces are expensive, and um, sometimes it, it may come to a point where you're simply unable to afford an attorney anymore. And at that point, the attorney is going to have to withdraw from your case. Um, it's not an automatic thing. The attorney is not just like, see you later, nice knowing you. Um, they have to receive permission from the court to withdraw from your case um, by filing a motion to withdraw, which you know generally takes the court between two and four weeks to grant if they do grant it. Um, and then while that motion is pending, the attorney will continue to work on your case, but the withdrawal has been started. Great. Um, 
and and that's that's tough when an attorney has to withdraw on a case, um, but it does happen. What's the best strategy uh, for a client who comes to the point where they they can't pay all of their bill? Right. Um, so I, you know, at, at that point, it is. I mean, one, it's best um, for the attorney to when it when it becomes clear and you know you're like, hey, I'm, I'm sorry, I can't retain your services anymore. I'm not going to be able to replenish. Um, this bill, you will want your attorney to withdraw before you end up owing more money. Um, you don't want your attorney to withdraw when you, to the point where you owe money and then you owe more money and it just keeps piling up. You want to be proactive about it. But I mean, after that and the withdrawal process has started, you want to make sure that you're on top of your case, that you're on top of deadlines, that you know what's coming up so that you're prepared to move forward on your own. Yeah. And actually the attorney will help with that, right? Yeah, I mean, definitely. It's, it's, we're required to make sure that you're advised of all the deadlines and dates and things like that. Um, and, uh, before we can withdraw from the case. Yeah. And we want it to be a smooth transition. We don't want to just leave you, uh, you know, throw you to the wolves. Um, we'll definitely prepare you for the transition, let you know what's coming up, what you need to do moving forward. Um, so that hopefully you can resolve the case successfully on your own. Yeah. All right. Anything else you can think of you want to talk about as far as lawyers getting paid? Um, I mean, I would just make sure if you're thinking about hiring an attorney um, and you do hire an attorney that you read the fee agreement so that, you know, you know, you're getting into, you know, to expect and so that there's you know no surprises down the road. Yeah, I think that's a that's a really good discussion to uh, to bring up when you meet with the attorney initially, too, is to, to talk about the terms and talk about expectations um, talk about the what ifs, uh, I, you know, a lot of people who come in are blinded by other questions mm -hmm. uh, and emotions. And so they don't, they don't ask these questions very clearly sometimes and that's okay. Um, but when you do think of them, ask them, make sure that you understand what the, the expectations are going to be and, and that you work with the attorney to, to, to get those met. Right. Um, all right. Anything else? Um, yeah, I think that, I think that covers it. Um, I, I guess my parting words would be, you know, read your fee agreements. Uh, like any other contract, read it, don't just sign it um, and, and know what you're getting into. All right. Sounds like good advice. Uh, thank you. And uh, we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to this week's Divorce Insight podcast. To get a copy of our free ebook, An Introduction to Divorce, click on the link below in the show's notes. Please contact our office for a free consultation. We're available to help you with any issue related to family law and divorce. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you stop by again soon. As a final note, please be advised that the information in this podcast is for general informational purposes only. Nothing in this podcast may be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. Please retain a lawyer for legal advice. This information is not intended to create, and receipt of or listening to this podcast does not constitute an attorney-client relationship.